Good morning to the Let's Talk EU podcast. We are in the new year 2023 with many exciting challenges on the EU regulatory calendar. With me today, I have someone who is extremely experienced in corporate governance and in boards. She's Dutch. Pauline van der Meer Moore with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be in the podcast. And she is chair of the supervisory board of ASM International, which is a large cap semiconductor equipment company. And is also serving as a non-executive director on the boards of Anhol Deneze, Nationale Nederlanden, and Beatrice Inc. And she's also served on many other large-cap boards in the past, including HSBC Holdings PLC. She's a lawyer, like me, started in private practice, followed by 30 years in various legal roles at Shell and ABN AMRO Bank. And from 2010 to 2016, she served as president of Erasmus University in Rotterdam. So also very much involved in the academia. She recently served as chair of the Dutch Corporate Governance Committee and completed the revision of the Corporate Governance Code in December 2022. So I hope that she's going to share some of that experience on revising that Corporate Governance Code. Sustainability is a key topic and we've seen the EU roll out regulations and directives where imported also sort of the shareholders' rights directive, which is being revised currently. New regulations and directives such as the due diligence and corporate governance, one which has been the topic of a hot debate because, of course, corporate governance is essentially legal. It's enshrined in company law. Let's say the part that is legal or in codes, but it has a very strong national aspect to it. So it is incredibly difficult to revise that up to an EU approach. There are differences between Italy and the Netherlands. There are differences between France and Sweden, for example. So how do we make sure that we move towards a supervisory convergence to convergence and visibility and clarity for investors at an EU level? Well, boards have an important role to play in this. They are driving the company together with the management. They are at the initial stage of that corporate governance and sustainability approach. A recent conversation with ESMA, the Supervisory Authority for Capital Markets in the EU, revealed to us that ESMA looks, first of all, to companies, to boards and the management to see what they're producing in terms of sustainability information, information about carbon imprint, corporate governance, then they look at the preparers. So they look at the auditors and the accountants, and then only comes in, kicks in the supervisory approach. So it's a three-step approach. And we see that at the initial stages, it's the company, it's the boards, and it's the senior management. Now, in a recent class study we did on sustainability at the global level at CFA Institute, we saw that at the retail level, investors really want to align with personal objectives and values. This is a big change. This was something that has been moving in recent years. But it's also at the institutional sort of with the funds approach to sustainability. So again, it's an important move because we need to have that additional view of what the company is doing, what it's doing to look at sustainability outside its own remit, but also what the impact of the company is. Again, Clearly, at the moment, climate is, of course, at the top of the agenda, but it's not the only one. It's also supply chain management, it's executive compensation, ethical labor practices, human rights, air and water pollution, and data protection and privacy. So it's a big, hefty topic. And the E is certainly not the only part. It's the S and the G. And the G, of course, it takes it all in. 
It's a big challenge. It's a new challenge, but it can be changing the perspective of financial markets. So looking at this increasing interest of shareholders in sustainability, what do you see as a new role for boards? Should boards be more diverse in their composition or more technical? And indeed, as you say, it's a very broad and comprehensive topic. And so boards have to relate to that. And it's new, it's novel for most of them. And it very much depends on the industry where you're in, how you will relate to this. For example, at HSBC, we had, obviously, you're in the financial industry, so informed not just by what your stakeholders expect of you, but you're also informed by stock exchange listing and disclosure rules globally. And so you can't just experiment. I mean, there are some guardrails there that you have to follow. When you are in that retail world, for example, it's very different. You know, there's strict guideline that you have to adhere to, and therefore you can afford to experiment a bit more with your stakeholder engagement, etc. The point is that the topics that you rightly list are very broad. So they range all the way from biodiversity disclosures to human rights issues. So that is tremendously broad, and it's not something that boards have typically in the past even thought about. And now they're suddenly asked to take a very thoughtful and methodical approach to this and also to come up with measurable targets and metrics. And so think about it. When normally you think about things like, you know, what's our earnings before tax? Let's talk about our free cash flow and our margins. And now suddenly we have to talk about human rights issues and biodiversity disclosures and and think about how to even come up with meaningful and measurable targets and metrics for that. I think there will be huge challenges in the next few years around companies accurately reporting against all these different EU directives. At the same time, I think it is a very big step forwards towards better disclosure for our stakeholders. Just the CSRD only is one of the most comprehensive disclosure requirements that I've seen in the world, and it's likely to influence the sustainability disclosures across different jurisdictions in the time to come. So boards need to think about what that means. So the answer to your question is probably both. So you probably need diversity and more technical knowledge in the board. You can't have proper discussion around human rights issues or biodiversity issues without having at least some knowledge. So my view is that it doesn't help to have the president of Greenpeace on your board. Actually, every board member needs to go back to school and educate themselves because they need to have a sort of a baseline of knowledge, IFRS requirements. You also need a baseline of knowledge of ESG uh, expectations. And it's just a huge amount of work. And it's not just the CSRD. Of course, there's an interconnection between other EU sustainability initiatives. You already mentioned a few. So there's the, I would add the EU taxonomy, the emissions trading system, you know, the due diligence guidelines. So there's, and it all serves to achieve the EU climate and biodiversity strategy. So I think it's all good stuff. It's just a huge amount of work. And so unless boards educate themselves in that area, they cannot provide a proper challenge, let alone advice to the management who have to execute on these objectives. I think you highlighted the issues for boards extremely well with this enormous challenge of in its diversity that's required, as you say, many Greenpeace knowledge is necessary. It reminds me of something that we've been looking at at CFA Institute, where we look at the future of finance, where we look at what is the future of asset management firms. And we could replicate that a little bit to companies because we look at what is needed is a portfolio approach. You need to have diverse people in your teams to catch all the different 
And we used to have that pre-Big Bang in London. I remember I started my career, you know, years ago in the early 80s. And teams, investment banks were very diverse. Not everyone was a master of finance. They were archaeologists, etc. And I think we need to come back to that sense of diversity. Of course, when we look at that sense, and you know, you highlighted the challenge, the wide gamut of topics that you need to be on top of. You mentioned the corporate sustainability reporting directive which entered into force this January, that introduced the concept of double materiality, which again, it's a big challenge. What is your view on double materiality reporting and how can board directors understand it and be transparent of it? So for double materiality reporting, boards need to do two things. So first of all, companies need to produce forward-looking reports and they need to highlight on the one side, the sustainability impacts of their operations. And on the other hand, also the financial impact of external sustainability issues. So that's, you know, the double materiality. Now, comes to the sustainability impacts of their operations, the first part of the double materiality, what I see is a lot of progress in scope one, two, and three reporting. And I see that most companies are now beginning to grapple with the scope one and two reporting. The issue, of course, is in scope three. And so, for example, for banks, that is in financed emissions, and that is just a topic which is, you know, the larger the bank, you know, the bigger your financed emissions, the harder it is to even articulate the scope. In retail, for example, you know, scope three is basically what you have on your shelves. And the impact of that is greatly influenced by amount of animal protein that you have on your shelves. So if you can reduce the amount of animal protein, you also automatically reduce your scope three. So scope three is very different for every industry. And it amounts to somewhere in the order of 90 to 98%, depending on the company, of your total emissions. So scope one and two is fine, but scope three is where the real task lies. And I don't know of any company who has fully mapped their scope three and who has got a full you know, transition plan ready now to move towards net zero in whatever timeline they've set for themselves. That's one side of the double materiality. The other side, of course, is the financial impact of sustainability issues. So what's the financial impact on our business of stuff that's happening out there. So climate disasters, for example. If you're an insurance company, it is relatively straightforward. I hesitate when I say straightforward. Relatively straightforward to map what the climate impact might be on your portfolio. It's very different for very different industries. And I haven't seen many companies that have really cracked that nut, who have really found ways and means of of measuring and articulating that risk. I do see, especially the financial world and banks, how they are now beginning to integrate climate risk, for example, into their risk models. That's happening. Probably the financial industry is further ahead than most other industries in thinking about you know, what are those external sustainability issues like climate disasters and how do we need to reckon with that in our core business. For example, in the semiconductor industry, where I spend some time thinking about what a climate disaster might mean for your capital equipment business, it's not very straightforward. It's not very straightforward. But for example, water use is more straightforward. So there's a lot of downstream, there's a lot of water use. For example, if you're in the chip manufacturers, they use a lot of cooling water, for example. And in some countries, they use up to 80% of the available fresh water for their industry. For example, Taiwan, you know, 80% of their fresh water supplies use mm-hmm. semiconductor uh, industry. So read by companies like TSMC, which are sort of like 80% of the economy there. And if you begin to think about that in terms of downstream usage of fresh water, 
and your responsibility for the supply chain as a whole. So what does that then mean? And how do you then translate that and begin to disclose that in your own in your report? I mean, we haven't even begun to stretch the service there. No, I agree with you. It was a very vivid when you gave the example of Taiwan freshwater usage. I mean, that's extraordinary, you know, to hear those percentages. And again, that is the challenge, as you say, for companies is immense. So should there be some training on sustainability for board directors? How do you see it? Or do you grow it organically? Or how do you envisage this? Oh, absolutely. And I'd always say hallelujah, because I think board directors have a tendency to think that they know it all by now. They know it all. They've seen it all, you know, at this advanced age, I'm so experienced and wise. (laughs) But the thing is, actually, we're all rookies. We're absolute beginners when it comes to these ESG issues, especially when it comes to the climate issues. We are absolute beginners. So I think it takes a very humble approach here and we all need to go back to school. And yes, of course, you know, we need to read up. We need we all read The Economist and we can read, you know, each other's annual reports to see what everyone's doing. And hopefully, you know, diligent board directors will do that because they will scramble to become competent. But I think more is needed than that. And I think there's a real gap to be filled here for executive education institutions. So obviously, I have a background as a university president. So, you know, naturally uh, fall back on, you know, university education there's a gap to be filled by universities for accredited programs so that you have at least some standard of excellence for board directors who want to do the, and you can actually use that as well. Not that board directors are that interested in building their CV, but I think you know, to have some accredited amount of externally acquired knowledge is actually quite useful to have. And I'd be very curious, any of the listeners have any tips for me? And none of the universities that I know have fully scoped ESG program for board directors today which is accredited as well, will give you the insights that you need. Arlene, as you were speaking, I was reminding myself, CFA Institute is a teaching association. We, of course, have our CFA charter and we have a lot of development in professional learning. So I was thinking and saying, well, maybe I should talk to my colleagues in professional learning and see if we cannot work jointly with academia. So this is a note to myself and to CFA Institute to follow up on your point. Now, going to, of course, the COVID period was very complex for AGMs. Everything that suddenly had to go online. And there were many criticisms directed at online meetings because, of course, the time for questions, it was easier to direct the topics. Some shareholders felt unheard and unlistened to. Again, how has this whole hybrid environment, we seem to be going back in person, but there are still hybrid meetings. And generally, the format, how do you see that engagement at the moment between companies and shareholders? It's interesting because I see a lot of difference between the EU zone and, for example, the US. I also serve on the US board. And what I see in the US is that there's very little interest in the AGMs anyway. So you typically, you know, one or two shareholders will show up at the AGM. And for the rest, some institutional investors may engage beforehand, but not even that. And so there's a lot more engagement happening in Europe than in the UK. I think the hybrid model has has served as well. It enables a lot more investors to join online, whereas they normally would have to come, in the case of HSBC, they would have to come to the Queen Elizabeth II Hall in London. And, you know, not every shareholder on the planet is willing or able to make the trip to London for an annual AGM. So it really helps to have this hybrid model because it actually opens up more opportunity for investors to join and to ask questions as well. 
So I think it's hybrid is good. It for companies it's more cumbersome. It just requires a lot more, you know, work and it's costly and it's cumbersome in many, many ways. But I, I think in terms of shareholder engagement or stakeholder engagement, it's good. But for me, the issue is not so much shareholder engagement. For me, the question is more, and this is also part of the Dutch corporate governance code, stakeholder engagement in more general terms. Because if you think about you, the amount of metrics that we'll have to use and in deciding what it is, how are we going to prioritize this, what is best for our industry or for our company, and in deciding what to measure in the first place, I think it's incredibly important that we don't just listen to our shareholders, but that we have a proper stakeholder engagement process in place. I think there's now a requirement, certainly in the Netherlands, under the new corporate governance code, to think about a comprehensive stakeholder engagement set. And I think the best companies do listen to their stakeholders in a number of different ways, and they also report on that. And they use the information that those stakeholder engagements provide to identify the issues which are most important to the stakeholders. They determine their materiality also based on what their stakeholders tell them. So it's not just a matter of what the stock exchange listing rules to prescribe, but it's also this is what our stakeholders tell us they care about. And then they determine the materiality as well as the materiality thresholds based on on that stakeholder input. So AGM is just one part in a broader universe of stakeholder engagement. I think that is so true. And back in 2016 at CFA Institute, we did some research on the shareholders' rights directive. And we did a joint piece together with London Business School, David Pitt Watson. And we really saw that institutional investors were becoming aware that they had to represent other stakeholders. And that's to that point that you said, you know, you need to engage with the other stakeholders, companies, institutional investors. That chain of communication needs to be far more active. And dynamic. And as you say, you get the grounds of, you know, the materiality issues. And the bigger the transparency in the dialogue, the better this will come. And this is a learning process. Do you think in this learning process and these engagements that having smaller targeted meetings, combining stakeholders with shareholders or just with a few major shareholders, do you think this sort of, you mentioned that you have separate meetings with stakeholders, but could you envisage even the AGM changing and having some preparatory meetings before the AGM. That's already happening. That's, that's happening. happening. Yeah, that's okay. well. That's, that's great. Major, yeah, all major corporations have a lot of pre-meetings with their shareholders and with their institutional investors and the proxy advisors. You actually have a whole cycle. There's a cadence of meetings throughout the year, and the frequency increase and the intensity increases coming up in the run-up to the AGM. And you know, sometimes so the AGM t- seasons typically in April, April, Mayish in most European companies. And what you see is that some of the institutional investors come up with new and revised guidelines for shareholder expectations in January. You see a whole flurry of, you know, activity taking place because companies suddenly have to adjust, you know, whatever it is to the revised shareholder expectations from the institutional investors. So there's just a lot of activity taking place in the run-up to the AGM. The AGM is really the endpoint of a longer process. So I frankly don't care too much about, you know, should it be smaller or larger or high? For me, the issue, you know, is there proper engagement beforehand? Are all the issues ironed out beforehand? Is there a proper understanding with the shareholder base about, you know, what it is that we're doing? Because obviously you're trying to make sure that you have, that you maximize your voting outcome. And you do that beforehand. You never do that during the AGM. You don't sit there unprepared and be suddenly surprised by an outcome that you didn't see coming. I mean, ideally, you should know exactly what the outcome will be when you go into the AGM. So honestly, the size of the AGM doesn't matter at that point. 
I'm all in favor of a, a very inclusive process where all of our stakeholders are have an opportunity to engage and that includes obviously the shareholders. That's wonderful. That's great that, you know, this process, these engagements are happening on a dynamic basis, I'm sure. It's probably not happening at all companies. Maybe some of the smaller companies have more challenges with this, but this can filter down, as you say. Absolutely. Pauline, thank you so much. You've shared really some nuggets of information that are very useful, I'm sure, to our listeners. I've very much enjoyed talking to you, and I thank you for this time. To my listeners, look out for the next Talking You podcast shortly, which will follow the retail investment strategy that is due to come out in the beginning of March with a new commission proposal. Thank you very much, Pauline. Thank you, World Hunt. Thanks for having me.